Thank you, Anthony. Scripture readers killing it lately. Andrew and Anthony, well done. Well, my name's Josh, and I get to teach that very long passage. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, the only pastor here until someone else comes in. But I get to teach Nehemiah, and I've had a blast teaching it. I've gone long every week, long in terms of what my wife says. That was too long, so she's not here again, so I might go long again. But here's what Nehemiah 4 is about. It's about life being hard. And not, so like our AC just went, went out in our Yukon, you take it in, you're like, it'll be a couple hundred bucks, it's a thousand bucks, like that sucks, we don't have a car, we now have a thousand dollars less. Um, life's hard for everyone. What Nehemiah 4 is about is specifically life is hard for the person trying to follow God. So everyone has a hard life. Everyone, whether you follow Jesus or not, life is just hard. It's beaten against us. There's illness, there's sickness, there's poverty, there's issues, there's anxiety, there's depression, there's hardness wherever you're at in life. But Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah in general is about the hardness of life in particular for being a Christian. Trying to follow Jesus in this life makes your life particularly hard. And what Nehemiah 4 puts us in in the middle is how do you live the Christian life in the middle of the battle against the opposition that comes because you're trying to follow Jesus. But Nehemiah 4 does this as well. It makes us deal with this tension. And some of you may be new to this tension. Some of you may have never heard it. If church is like new to you, this is not even on your radar. But if you've been in church a while, you kind of listen in for buzzwords. And they're all around this idea of how people view the sovereignty of God. How much in control is God? Is he this much in control? Is he this much in control? Is he in charge of my kid's salvation? Is he in charge of all the evil? Like how, on a spectrum, how much credit do you give God for how in control he is? And we are a reformed church. Some of you may know what that means, others don't. But that we tend to say God's very much in control. Like at Press Coffee, there's this kid there that I really like, sweet guy, works there. But he's Christian, and he's been hopping around churches, so I always joke with him, like, what church are you at this week? And he tells me, I'm at this church, and I just, Thursday, I was like, why don't you ever come to our church? And then I just thought, I'm like, is it because of the, our view of reform stuff? And he's like, yeah. So in his mind, I haven't talked and fleshed it out, but in his mind, our church would lean too heavily on God's in control of all things. He wants a church that kind of is on this side of the spectrum, that man has ability and responsibility and his actions actually matter. Here's what's just sad is we all kind of look at it from different angles and we miss each other a lot. Nehemiah 4 is important because it kind of walks us through a narrative in the Old Testament where you see this fleshed out. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. How much is God in control? And how much does what I do tomorrow, Monday morning matter? It matters a lot. Like practically, here's how I've experienced it recently, kind of on a smaller scale. Uh, the young men who are battling against impurity in pornography. I was meeting with one guy who says, I just want God to totally take it away. Like I want him to come in and like, regardless of kind of the safeguards I put, I, I just want my heart to be ex on, on fire for Jesus and I want God to like, and I'm like, dude, that day is not coming. Why? Because there's a battle you've got to play in this. Like, you've got to do something to battle against this. It's, God's not going to superimpose himself and just... The other way I see it is kind of macro. Just in... Christians are just really fearful right now. Like, I, 
I just talked to a lot of Christians who listen to a lot of sources online, and they're just afraid that this is the thing that's going to take down the church. It's Marxism. It's socialist. It's critical race theory. It's black. It's, that's the thing that's taken down the church. And there's like this desire in us to fight against things that we think are attacking the church. Now, I'm not making a statement on all this. I'm just saying, in your mind, here's where the sovereignty piece plays out. How much role does God have in this battle, and how much role do you have? We all kind of tend towards a certain, like my wife, very specifically. She grew up in a church that leaned heavily on, listen, little girl, you 12-year-old out there, you better make a decision for Jesus right now. If you don't, all hell will break loose in your life. 12-year-old, are you ready? The whole universe is waiting for you, 12-year-old, to make this decision. Make this decision. And she was just constantly bombarded with this pressure for the responsibility she had in this world. And then she meets just an older guy who's like, hey, have you ever like, read that God's kind of in control? She's like, I've never been told that. And her mind's blown. She actually meets Jesus for the first time, and she falls in love with Jesus. Why? Because he's in control. Does she have responsibility? Yes. Is God in control? Yes. That's what we're going to walk through in this, is the people of God facing unique opposition because they're the people of God. How do you deal with this opposition? How much is God doing? How much are we doing? What's the role? But that's what we're doing. We're just walking through Nehemiah chapter 4 and all the opposition they're facing. We're just going to try to learn from Nehemiah and the people around him. Here's the things, those of you who like to take notes, there's four sort of rounds of opposition I see in here. There's a sort of ridiculing opposition. There's a kind of talking trash. There's a scheming opposition. All right, let's plan. There's a discouraging opposition. Let's get at their negative thoughts. And then it ends with a very depressing, there's sort of a never-ending opposition we face as Christians in this world. Like it, it's not over till it's over. We're in the fight until the end, until the trumpet sounds or we die. This battle does not in. So that's where we're walking. Let's pray and just ask God to meet us where we need to be met individually and as a family. Jesus, we have a hard life because we've chosen to follow you. We want to be faithful to you, and that has brought on unique circumstances, situations, people, enemies, opposition, and yet you know better than us. You were opposed more than any other person ever. You faced it with grace and dignity. And you did it perfectly so that we don't have to rest in our ability to face opposition perfectly, but we can rest in you while we still learn from your story and even these folks who came long before you were on earth. God, help us to learn from this book as we open it up. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're just going to walk through, look at opposition, kind of see how they deal with it. So the first one is this ridiculing opposition. If you have your Bibles there, Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's look at this. We're going to read verse 1 through verse 3. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, so Nehemiah is leading this charge to rebuild the wall, catch you up, that's where we're at so far in the story. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. See those emotional, angry, greatly angered, jeering. Verse 2, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in the day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then he pulls his buddy over. Tobiah was beside him. He said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. What do we see there? A ridicule. They, they're angry. They're mad. And then they kind of bully up and they start sarcastically taunting the people of God. Look at these people. We see anger. So what sort of opposition are we going to face? 
anger and ridicule. I'm like, you're about what? You think Jesus is what? You think you should live life that way? You give money to, it's, that's what it is. Jesus says it this way, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Now, we live in a world that is just very loud. And I think Christians too often attribute everything to us because I'm a Christian. Yeah, or you're a jerk. It could be sort of a combination. Like, the world hates the things of Jesus. Jesus tells us that. But not everything we're dealing with in life is because of our faith. And we just have to be honest with that. But some of it is. Some of it is. Like, how do we experience this in our life? I was trying to think, like, how do I currently and the people I get to interact with, my friends and family who want to follow Jesus, how are they dealing with this on a day-to-day basis? And I kind of came up with two big bucket things. The first one is this. The convictions we are trying to carry in this world are causing ridicule. So just give you a heads up. In the fall, we're going to teach six weeks on sort of the issues of the day that most people disagree with Christians on and disagree our take, what the Bible has to say. So here's some of them. We're going to talk about gender. We're going to talk about sex and sexuality. We're going to talk about who's actually the vulnerable. We're going to talk about generosity, and we're going to talk about salvation. We call those the countercultural convictions because they are counter to what the culture would say are convictions we should hold. And we live in a world where they want to know, like, what do you believe about? Like, I was just in San Diego driving around, listening to the local station, and they had this bit, that's all I need to know. And it was basically, you call in, and you got to say the one thing you need to know about someone, and then you have a total blanket statement to make about him. So that's all I need to know about Anthony. So they called in, if you have personalized license plates, that's all I need to know about you. I'm done with you. If you, did, and they had all these goofy ones, and I think... That's the way the world works. One of these things, what do you think about homosexuality? Well, I think this. That's all I need to know. Anger, jeering, greatly enraged because it doesn't line up with the cultural narrative we have today. And I'm not saying let's pick up swords and go fight. It's more of an awareness of this is how life works if you want to follow Jesus. It's like a good curveball. I was coaching my oldest son in majors. They'd never seen any curveballs. And then Andrew's kid is legit and hits bombs. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to throw him some curveballs. And he couldn't hit a curveball. He's never seen a curveball before. Like part of it is just knowing the curveball's coming. It's not, let's stop everything. It's just, no, this is how people interact. Like my friends in Silicon Valley would tell me, you have no idea what it's like to deal with HR and all the things that coming against Christianity. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I know this, but just know that's all I need to know. People are kind of sizing us up based off what we say about certain things. And we should be gracious enough to be able to keep the conversation going. Here's the other bucket. And this is what I, just especially if you're a new believer, the family and friends around you start to size you up. And that's where you're going to feel a lot of this just ridicule in your life. Like, I have a friend who lived a very promiscuous life. He got saved in his mid-20s, like, recently within the year, and now he's trying to be pure. He wants to start this purity movement. Great guy, trying to do all the things that we would want young men in this church to be doing. And he is just getting pounded by his family. Like, dude, what happened to you? You were like the standard. And now you're this guy? Because family and friends are part of this anger and ridicule 
in sarcasm. I see it in my kids. My oldest kid talks about, I said, do you cuss at school? I said, no. I'm like, tell me the truth, you know. He says, I want to, though, to fit in. It's like, whatever age it starts at, there becomes a point where if Jesus is going to be the person we follow, you're going to make decisions where people are going to see you as different, and there's going to be ridicule in your life. And then we just have to know the curveball's coming. That's Nehemiah knew the curveball was coming. What's interesting is how he responds is pretty intense, not horizontally, but vertically. Let's read. How does he respond to the ridicule heaped up on him? Verse 4. So they're just talking trash. They're being sarcastic. They're just being punks. Verse 4, he prays. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Let's stop. That's called an imprecatory prayer. That's an intense word. It means you are praying to God for him to do something bad to another person. Ridicule, mocking, oh, you're really about that? Nehemiah stops and prays, God, turn this on them. The most famous, because it's just brutal, is out of Psalm 137. This is what the prayer in Psalm 137. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, translation babies, and dashes them against the rocks. You're like, that's in this? Yes, because it's written at a time when Babylon was in charge, and part of what they did when they came into land is they took little ones and they bashed their heads against rock as a way to say we're in this now and we lead this and they're praying god do that to them and nehemiah is praying god turn this back on them what do we take what do we make of this like here's a few things it's not directed towards the person it's not i'm gonna kick your it's god kick his it's directed towards god god you are the judge you do this, God. But as Christians, I just think we have a more unique way to pray than just an imprecatory bring judgment on them. Even verse 5 in that prayer he says, read this. Just how much does this sound like something should resonate with a Christian? Verse 5, do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. We as a Christian, I think God has given us green light to take our emotional anger at people to him and say, God, you do something. But we got to read verse 5 and say, do not cover their guilt. And it should ring in our ears like, but God, you covered my guilt. And I'm not quite ready to be the best friends with this person, but I know my sin cost you your life on a cross. So God, do some heart work in me so that I could love them like your Bible tells me to love them. So can we be angry? Should we take our stuff to God? Absolutely. They're all over. They're in the Psalms, which is our, God's way to teach us how to pray. But we as Christians have a new covenant. We have our sins have been covered and our guilt has been covered. We can say, God, gosh, I'm so frustrated. This is insane, but you were much more gracious to me than I am to them. So that's the first sort of opposition we see is just ridicule, just words. It's sort of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words actually do hurt. And this is the word section. Let's go to verse 7. Now, what do we see next? This is the, now they start to scheme. 
So they get back to work, verse 6. So we built the wall, and half the wall was joined together. The schemers are now looking at it, verse 7. What do we see here? Verse 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. They're still angry. Verse 8, they're going to do something about it. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. What do we see here? We see a sort of scheming opposition. We see Sanballat, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites. Basically, each of those people groups are from a different. So we got the north covered, the east covered, the west covered, and the south covered. So all of their neighbors are getting involved against the people of God. Everyone around them is against them, and they're scheming. They're working together to fight against, and I just love, just because this is how the church works, to cause confusion. Most of the struggle we have in the church is confusion that's been caused, ultimately from the devil, Satan, the ultimate deceiver, but then how it trickles down through all these world systems and worldviews and thoughts, and we are just confused. Like the number one way I experience spiritual warfare in my life, this is just me, it's not like demons. It's my wife and I are just missing. There's like a confusion with the most important relationship I have. And now it's like, why? Because we have a devil who is working together to cause confusion. And the people of God are experiencing, they are working together to cause confusion. Now, just as I've studied this, one thing that's not mentioned much is the motives of the people coming at this. East, west, north, south, let's, right, let's scheme together. It just kind of says they're scheming together against the people of God. Well, what are the motives? Here's where I think a lot of followers of Jesus go wrong. They spend a lot of time thinking about the motives of stuff going on around them. It's like, I, I don't know if we have that much wisdom or ability to see into why stuff is going against us. And the scripture doesn't spend a lot of time like, we got to tie this motive to this and this world leader to this and this. And well, did you watch this YouTube video? And obviously then, and then Detroit, oh, here's, this, here's what's wrong with it. Oh gosh, I don't know. It's hard to be a Christian, period. Why? Because it's hard to follow Jesus because the world hates Jesus. If we spend a lot of time tying up all these motives of different political agendas, a different worldview, then we're just going to, we're going to, miss out on opportunities to be witnesses of Jesus. It's, it's here. People are plotting. The north, the sea, the, everywhere around us, people are plotting against the things of God because that's what the Bible says. How do we experience this today? Well, you've got countries that are very hostile towards Christianity in general. Like my last missionary trip was to Turkey. I visited three missionaries, and all three have been kicked out in the last year. America's not on any top 10, 20, 30 list of hostility towards Christianity. But it's becoming increasingly harder to be a Christian here. And I don't say that like, yeah, let's take down the man. I think we're just getting more and more squeezed to sort of a minority position in society. And some would say, this is the worst thing that could happen to us. Others would say, that's all I've ever known as a Christian globally more diverse sort of backgrounds. I think the Bible would say, it doesn't matter if you're here or here, you can still follow Jesus. But we got to understand, we are getting squeezed out. I read one book recently, and there was a great line in there. I'm like, that is spot on. He's describing secular Europe, and he's kind of writing it to Americans, like, you guys better watch. This is happening, and this is coming to you next. 
But this is how he describes the church. The church is like a hospital in a society where medical science has inferior status. We are bringing medicine that nobody thinks is actually medicine. We are bringing knowledge that people think is stupid. We are bringing a remedy that nobody's asking for. What are we going to do about it? I'm going to get really mad. I'm going to post. I'm going to... I don't know. Nehemiah, look what he says. Verse 9. And we prayed to our God, but we also set a guard as protection against him day and night. What is Nehemiah's answer? God is sovereign. I'll pray, but I've got work to do. I must fight against this well. I will set a protection. So I'm not saying lay down and do nothing, but Nehemiah says pray to God on our behalf. Pray, first of all, that our motives are in line with his, and then work towards protecting ourselves from the things we need protected against. We pray and we fight. We pray and we fight. That is the life of a Christian. We pray and we fight. We fight, we pray, we... So a few questions for you. What does it mean to set a guard against your home, your family, for you right now in this moment? Like, like I said, some of us lean too heavily. Well, God's sovereign. He's going to take care of it. No, we, we, we prayed to God, and then we set up a guard. We've got lots of young families in here. We're living in the most revolutionary time where digital media and everything. It's like, sure, we, I've read it a thousand times. We live in an interesting time. But what are you doing in your home to set up a guard, a protection against the things working against the people of God? What are you doing? What does it mean to set up a guard against laws that you disagree with as a Christian? Like, we should be involved with stuff. And there are laws that aren't going to line up with what we think are God's will and God's way of doing ethics. But what are you going to do? What are we going to do to set up a guard against this? How about this? What does it mean to set up a guard against a society that has become so consumeristic that nobody even sees it anymore? Like we just, that's the water we swim in. The life that we need is out there. And if we get this and this and just this, we're this close to getting the good life. And we all swim in that water. What are the guards you have against consumerism? It affects us all. What do we do? We pray and we fight. One guy said this, Nehemiah was awesome. He prayerfully hoped for the best and he always expected the worst. Prayerfully hoped for the best. God, we pray to you and we set up a guard because we know these enemies are scheming and they're close and they're getting closer. Takes us to our third opposition. Verse 10 there. So we got the just ridicule. We've got the plotting and scheming of people around us as the people of God. Verse 10, we now, it turns internally, and now we have discouragement as opposition. We have a discouraging opposition. Let's see this. Verse 10, let's just read it verse by verse. In Judah, so now that attention is turned back into the land of God, this is what's said. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Let's pause right there. We see an internal discouragement. Seventy years of Babylonian captivity when it, Jerusalem was destroyed, and how many attempts at rebuilding? Seventy years 
where they've watched failure after failure after failure, and this is their summary statement. The strength of those who bear this burden is failing. We can't do this. Why? Because they have this muscle memory that we just fail. The people of God were kicked out by Babylon. We've been brought back in, and we have not done anything good since. We got a temple, but even the people that saw the temple were like, Half disappointed, like, gosh, that's not nearly as good what we used to have. There's all this discouragement. I think partly why Nehemiah was brought in was to be an outsider. He wasn't living here. He kind of brought fresh vigor. Like some of these churches around here, especially Methodist churches, bring in new pastors every two years. And part of I asked one guy, why do you guys do it that way? Part of it is so we can bring that fresh outsider like, all right, let's do this. Part of it, we might just need outside voices sometimes to be like, come on, we can do this. Verse 11. What other sort of discouragement? And now their enemies chime in and heap up on top of their discouragement. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. We have outsiders that get to pinpoint the insecurities within the church and go at those things. Like that's how Satan does most of his work. He's not like conjuring up new material on you or us. He has this sort of resume of our life. He's like, yep, addict. And that's going to be the reoccurring theme. But you know you're an addict. But you know like you've never really gotten past. You're just an addict. You're just an adulterer. You know, like, we, we saw that. She saw that. Like, Satan just takes past stuff that Jesus took care of. And he says, have you thought about the cross actually covering all that and that's just how discouragement works it kind of taps in and it gets at us like the most this might be too much but the most insecurity i've felt has been in the last six months and i think it's because god told me to do something by his grace i'm trying to do it we're trying to be a part of this new church experience and i just hear all these things like ah you really are you that and not to like I am the guy, but that's how Satan works. He's jabbing at all of us, individually and collectively. Are we really, is this really the solution to the problems of the world? The Bible would say, yes, the church has the hope for the world. And do we feel like that? No, because we're addicts and adulterers and overspenders and we're obese or we're underweight, and we're insecure and we're anemic and we're all these things. Satan keeps tapping into in verse 12, here's what happens in the church especially. That being said, all this sort of past history tied in with this outside sort of discouragement coming in. What is the church? What is the people of God supposed to do in a time where we're supposed to move forward with the gospel to preach to those who have not heard? Verse 12, and at the time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. You see what? The people there say, we can't, we've got to stop. This is not worth it. This, the work of the church, the work of Nehemiah's day, it's not worth it. They said to us 10 times, come back. We had a good life. Nehemiah had a good life. Some of these people had a good life. Stop, this is too much. We just give up. How do we experience this today? What is it? Internally, we all have sort of, a, hopefully you know, this is one test of how connected you are to any church body, but this church body in particular. Do you know like the negative thoughts that Satan can kind of tap into to mess with you? And do any other people in this church know them for you? 
I think if that's in place, that's a very safe way to protect ourselves against the schemes of the devil. Externally, what are the things coming at us that we need to be aware of? Like, here's a, finish this statement. Not out loud, because I would maybe be disappointed. The biggest enemy of Christianity right now is... We all have sort of answers to this. The church I used to attend in Texas just had this big conference saying, the biggest enemy of the church is... And I just don't see it that way. What is the biggest enemy of the church right now? I don't think we need to worry that we're not smart enough to figure out. But we need to know what are the streams of thought, negative thoughts, worldviews that are infiltrating the church and specifically that affect me and the people I love. And then you're always going to have people in the church that just say, let's stop. Like there's people that want to defend the status quo. Like let's not, we don't need to do that. Like my uncle, who is not a Jesus follower at all, he called me the other day, he lives in Houston. He's like, you know, I want to check out church. We come from this Catholic, Hispanic family. He's like, I know Nana told us all to be Catholic. I don't know what I am. I, I'm figuring out. But here's my number one question as I try to figure out this Jesus and church thing. Why are there so many churches? I said, like, how much of an answer do you want? I said, we can talk. We talk for like an hour. I said, well, people started reading the Bible for themselves, and that became the first split. We're like, ah, oh, we disagree with the church is saying on this. So there becomes the Protestant rift, which is us. We're like, oh, we don't do. And then within Protestant, like how many church denominations do we have now? Why? Because every church family thinks, you know, this is really important, and I want to fight for this, and I get that. And we want to defend the status quo, and now we have all these offshoots based off how you view baptism, how you view this, how you view this. And that's the same as the, the issue there. Just come back. No, no. The, the, the past, what we've been in is the better version. We don't want to step into this pain. It's too much. And that's just a battle, an opposition that is unique to being a Christian. How does Nehemiah deal with this? Internal, like imagine, you're dealing with a group of people so discouraged. The outside voices are now getting in, and now those people are coming up to you and saying, you know what they're saying, we should just stop. You know what they're saying, we should just stop. You know what they're saying, we should just stop. You know what they're saying, we should just stop. How does Nehemiah respond to this internal discouraging opposition? Verse 13, let's read it. So in the lowest parts, he just keeps working. Nehemiah's just a baller. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open place, and I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their, bow their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I love that. That's a great Father's Day message. Fight! Fight for each other. What does he do? He taps into, remember the Lord who is awesome. God's sovereignty, and fight, but not just fight individually, fight for each other. This is the first time the communal fighting kicks in. Fight for the people next to you. I wrote this, who is prayerfully fighting for you and encourage you in this church family? Who's fighting for you? Who are you fighting for? Because here's just discipleship is trying to get people to follow Jesus. What makes discipleship really difficult these days is there's so many voices involved. In everything, like how I view this, well, I go listen to this person. How I view this, I go listen to all these voices. Here's a question just to sort of test how much weight to give to people. And it's not like to dismiss good, truthful thoughts, but it's just a way to, this is, this is how you should weigh stuff. Here's the, here's the question I'm at. Who has never prayed for you, ever, you personally, 
and yet get your ear a lot. That would be every news commentator you listen to has not spent one second of their day ever praying for your name specifically, ever. And yet, how much weight do we give to people who don't even know our name? Well, they said, I don't care. What did your RC leader who prays for you say? The church fight for each other. God is awesome. He'll do the battle. He'll win this, but fight for each other. That's the church. Amen? That's how we do this. And then you would expect, like, after that, like, rallying, crying, fathers, like, yeah, fight for each other. And they kick their butts, and the battle was over. Go home and watch the sons. Amen. But verse 15 says this. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each one to their work. Great. The enemies are done. We're good. Verse 16. Nope. But from that day on, Half the servants worked on construction, half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. What do we learn from that? The battle does not end. They heard that God had opposed them, and the people are still holding spears and shovels. They're still praying and still fighting. Even though the enemy kind of knows it's on its heels and ultimately knows it's probably going to lose, they still are in this battle. That is depressing. Here's what... The battle just does not end. Like, you just see, they got up for work. Let's see, verse, middle of verse 16. And the leaders stood behind the loss of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand, held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. But in the place where you hear the sound of this trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Verse 21. So we labored at the work. Half of them held spears and from the break of dawn until the stars came out. They just keep battling. I had breakfast with my dad this morning. He's not, he's like, I don't know how old he is, 60. He's like, I'm just tired of the fight against sin, against all this discouragement. It's like, I'm just tired. I want to, like, I want to stick around and do a good job for you guys, but I'm just tired. He's describing Nehemiah 4. What is life like for a Christian? You work and you fight, you work and you fight, you pray and you battle, and it just does not end. Like some of you are still dealing with the same exact things you dealt with the moment you met Jesus. Like, man, when are we ever going to get pure thoughts purely for an entire day? God bless that day. It is not here. We pray and we fight. All the insecurities that race through us. One day is coming when those are gone, but until then, we pray and we fight. And not just for ourselves, but for each other. We pray and we fight. And how much do they fight? They fight a lot. How does Nehemiah respond to this? Verse 20. Let's just look at that again. He reminds his people, in that place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally there. Our God will fight for us. God is sovereign. He is in this battle for us. That could be the end of the statement, but it ends at verse 23. Let's read verse 23 together. So neither 
I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Which of those verses do you need to hear louder this morning? Our God will fight for us or you don't take off your clothes because the battle is always on. Nehemiah told us people both. God is fighting for us and keep your clothes on because the battle rages all night. There's never an end to this battle. Which one of those verses do you specifically need to hear? God is fighting for you. He's sovereign. He's going to battle. He's going to battle through the means, though, of us keeping our clothes on and battling until he comes back one day. Who's responsible for the fight, God or us? Nehemiah would say, God will win this battle and keep your sword close and keep your clothes on because the battle is always around. I know it's not a very encouraging, but it is reality. It's the world we live in. And some of us need to be reminded, God is bigger than all this. And some of us need to be reminded that I've been slacking. I've been asleep. I haven't protected my family well. I haven't protected my spouse well. I haven't protected my own heart well. I haven't protected the people in this church well. I have not prayed for them. I have... Both need to be heard. God is in this battle. We need to fight. But we as Christians also get to read Nehemiah uniquely. It's not the end of the story. My oldest son just started reading Harry Potter. He's like on the second book. I've never read it. My wife's read it like 46 times and she's just all giddy every time he comes. He's like, I just got to this character. And it's like, and my wife's like, ah, because she knows the whole story. And she's like, oh, he's getting to a good part. We as Christians are like Aubrey. We have the whole story. We don't end in Nehemiah. The fight is better than what's in Nehemiah. Like we have Jesus who fought for us. He won the battle. The battle is over in the grand scheme of things. Sin has been defeated. Why? Because Jesus fought for us and he's fighting for us. Amen. I just want to read this. How much did Jesus fight for us? Like how much can we trust the gospel that Jesus really was in it till the end? This is from a a writer I like to follow, but it's talking about Jesus on the cross. He was offered drinks twice. Wine this time and wine this time. And the author gets at why that is. Twice Jesus was offered wine while on the cross. He refused the first, but he took the second. Why? The first time in Mark, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And according to old tradition, respected women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink to those condemned to death in order to decrease their sensitivity to the pain that was coming. In other words, they gave him this little... Benadryl, Tylenol, so that the pain of the cross would not be as bad. And Jesus refused. Why? Because he's fighting for us till the very end. The second time came in Mark 15. After some bystanders thought he was calling for Elijah, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, well, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. About this wine, a sour wine vinegar is mentioned in the Old Testament as a refreshing drink. And in Greek and Roman literature, it's well-common beverage appreciated by laborers and soldiers because it relieves thirst more effectively than water and it's inexpensive. It also prolongs life. So the first wine mixed with myrrh was designed to dull the pain, to keep him from having to endure the fullness of the cross. He refused. And the second kept him alive for maybe just a moment longer. Why? Because he was going to battle to the end. So we are not like the people of Nehemiah saying, our God will fight for us. We are saying Jesus has 
fought for us. He defeated sin on the cross for you and I when we did not deserve it. And now we can say as his people, we will pray and we will fight until the end. I wish it wasn't like this, but this is the world we live in and we will pray and we will fight. Verse 9, we prayed to our God and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. Let's pray. Jesus, you know what needs to be heard and applied in this room, in our hearts, in our homes, in this church. God, we live in a loud world. Everything is vying for our attention. And yet coming to Nehemiah, we see your people doing your work. We want to be your people doing your work, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that you commanded. That is our work on this earth. And when we choose that work, we will face opposition, God, and we are facing it. And we have unique stories of opposition in this room now. I pray the words of Nehemiah would be encouraging that opposition is expected, that there is a way to battle opposition faithfully as the people of God, that we can pray to you and know you're the one ultimately in the battle. And yet we still have work to do. So God, I just want to give space now for your spirit to move, to encourage where encouragement's needed, to convict where conviction is needed, and ultimately to restore and to get us back to work, doing the work while still protecting against the opposition around us. God, thank you for this church family. Just what a gift it's been. It's been a picture of Nehemiah 4 in my own life of people fighting for me and my kids and men and women of this church loving our kids so well. God, keep us a tight family, committed to your work and committed to fighting for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.